Last week, we looked at Jesus's first words from the cross, which were really incredible in that he prays for his enemies, the very people that were bringing great hurt and pain against him. He prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. And it's just something that it's hard for us to wrap our minds around at what cost Jesus was praying that prayer. But as, as we turn the page and move forward in the story of Jesus' crucifixion, we come to a next section, a next cry of, of Jesus. And, and this one is a, a message that is, has great comfort to it. A, a message of, uh, quite frankly, of just amazing grace displayed in the most brilliant level. This week I, I watched a documentary on Netflix called Final Account. And in this documentary, it, it interviewed, uh, it was pretty much all in German, so I had to read subtitles. And it interviewed um, those that were alive and, and those who were German during World War II. And so it, it interviewed a wide variety of people from people that were really not involved in the war at all to, to those that were even SS soldiers during the war and worked at these concentration camps. And the, one of the things that he, the, the questions just kind of led and asked is what their experience was and, you know, whether they adopted the Nazi belief and, and kind of after the war, kind of where they are now. And it was fascinating to kind of get these different responses. In some ways, it was quite disheartening because there were some people that were like, I don't think, you know, that Adolf Hitler had, had done, has done anything wrong. And I'm like, I can't believe you just said that on camera. And, and it was just crazy things like that. But two things really struck me as I watched this documentary. And I think that, that speaks more to generally who we are as human beings. The first one is this. It's very, very, very easy to do the wrong thing and to be caught up in this wave of whatever is current or um, essentially feels right at the time, sounds right at the time. It's very easy to get caught in the current of a river and to just float down it. And that's one of the things that, that we saw in this documentary is, is that so many people, even if they weren't perpetrators themselves, they were a part of this system that perpetrated massive crimes against humanity. But another thing kind of stuck out to me, and this came from one particular older gentleman that worked at a concentration camp. And this thing is that it is quite overwhelmingly difficult sometimes to do the right thing. Even though it is very, very easy to, to kind of go with the flow and embrace the wrong thing, it is incredibly difficult to turn against the tide and to begin walking upstream. And there was this one older gentleman that, that, that essentially owned responsibility, his responsibility in the midst of all of this and took great shame and blame for what he personally did and what the, the system that he played a part in created. And as we look at the words coming out of Jesus's mouth today, we find these very two things at play. 
that it's, it's very easy to go the way of the crowd, but it is incredibly difficult that when, when you end up changing your mind to turn around and go the other way to do the right thing. And so we again jump back into Jesus is being crucified. At, at this hour, Jesus had already been lifted up. He had been scourged. He had walked the road of sorrows, and he had been lifted up. His feet had been nailed to the cross. His hands had been nailed to the cross, and he had been lifted up and had been there for quite some time at this point. He had already uh, prayed one prayer. But now there's this interesting exchange that happens. So Jesus has been scourged, he's been spit upon, he's been lifted up on the cross, but the focus begins to turn away from the religious leaders who had put him there and incriminated him. The, the, the camera begins to pan away from the Roman soldiers who were mocking him, tearing his garments, and essentially betting on who would get them. And it begins to pan away from the people that were passing by crying, crucify him, crucify him. And the camera begins to focus in on these two people that, that are on either side of Jesus. Jesus was crucified in between two criminals, meaning that symbolically Jesus was the most criminal of all of them, which we know, of course, to be untrue, but Theologically, we know as Jesus took the cup of wrath of God's judgment, became the most true. But these, there's this exchange between these two criminals on either side of Jesus. And this focus really kind of comes into play and in where we find two different reactions and ultimately two divergent paths. One in which is considered, we would say, is the wrong but very easy way and the other one in which is in every way difficult for this other man to really realize elsewhere Jesus calls this the broad way in which people are walking and the what the narrow path right and on this narrow way we find today in scripture what is maybe the most captivating picture and display of God's amazing grace that we can find anywhere in the New Testament. So look with me at Luke chapter 23, and we will begin in verse 39. And when you get there, say word. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Notice this is the, the same thing others were jeering at him earlier. Save yourself. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Here's the, the thing that I want us to, to see and be captivated by this morning. Remember this for ourselves. Remember this for the people that we live among, the people that we share the gospel with. And that's this truth, that Jesus welcomes all. Jesus welcomes all who come to him in repentance and faith. 
no matter who they are, what they've done, or where they are. You have the the most uncomfortable, gruesome situation ever. A man deserving of death. And he cries out to Jesus in the final hour, having done nothing worthy in his life. And Jesus says something startling to him. Something that we would not expect. Something, quite frankly, I don't know that we would be able to say ourselves in a situation like that. And that Truly, I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. It's amazing. And he gives, and Jesus does this as well. He he doesn't just give what the man asks. Jesus gives him abundantly more than he asks. So let's first examine and take a a slight kind of view, view in on the rejection of the hardened heart, the rejection from the hardened heart. We see this in verse 39. One of the criminals who were, who were hanged on the cross railed at him or blasphemed him. That's another way of putting it, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So this, this man who was being hanged on the cross justly looks at Jesus and says, so if, if you are who you say you are, then I'm really just worried about myself and all of this, right? Save yourself, but also save me. I would appreciate it. Save us. He's just, he's railing against him, joining the crowds, joining the religious leaders who had caused him to be scourged and then crucified and condemned. One of the things that, that we found interesting, Lauren and I found interesting in being cat owners is that there are certain things about this cat that um, just are crazy to us. And I'm sure this is sort of like on a small, small level, like having kids, but there are things that, that we would really like to do for this cat that he simply will not allow us to do. The couple of, uh, about a week and a half ago, we really were like, we, he's been going outside some. I know a lot of you saw the picture of me walking him on a leash like a weirdo, and I get it, I brace it. Like that's, that's, that's what I am as, as a cat dad at this point. But I, I walk him on a leash, but <laughs> I know why. Um, but essentially we're like, we need to put flea medicine on this cat. And, and that just turned into a whole hysterical episode of essentially it just like dripping down his back and nothing gets on him and he's scratching Lauren like crazy. Next time we're just gonna drug him before we do it because we, we just couldn't get anything on this cat. But it was all for his benefit, right? Jesus had just prayed this prayer for the benefit of not just the crowd, but for the criminal next to him. But this man had chosen to reject that and continue the way of the crowds, rejecting the very thing, the very offer that could truly save him. He rejects him and rails against him. The taunting and jeering against Jesus had continued, and this time it came from the criminal beside him, one of the people he had just prayed for. He truly had no idea who Jesus truly was, and if he did, he rejected him fully. The the most difficult part about the theology of the Christian faith is that when those reject the faith, 
when they turn away, they're cutting themselves off from the very thing that saves them and brings them life. And that's the sad reality of what we see this criminal do. He's going the easy way, the the way of the masses, the wide, broad way. But in the midst of this story, when you would expect the other criminal to continue doing the same thing, because the book of Matthew, in his account, he shows that not just the other criminal was doing this, but the, the, the second criminal on the other side of Jesus was also making fun of him and railing against him. But we begin to see God's amazing grace break through this hardened heart, and we see the confession of this from this softened heart. The other criminal we see beginning in verse 40. But the other rebuked him, not Jesus. The other, something is happening in this man's heart that is only put there by the Holy Spirit. The other man rebuked the other criminal saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. We see this man begin to change. Something happens from the man that, that was railing and jeering against Jesus to this man that now turns and does the hard thing and rebukes the other criminal and says, do you not fear God? The first thing that that God puts within us is this, we begin, he begins to put within us this understanding of our great need. That there's something wrong with us, right? That we, we ought to have to, we have this, we must have this fear of God. He begins to have this true understanding of his relationship with Jesus. And that's the first thing God does in our hearts as we come to him. And then as believers, when he must break in to our hardened hearts again, as he must reestablish this understanding of and the weight of our sin before him. That he is under this condemnation because of his own sin, not because of anything else. Paul mentions this in Romans 3.18 after this long diatribe in which he says that there's no one righteous, no, not one. He's talking about both Jews and Greeks who reject the gospel. This is his conclusion. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So the first thing that God does as he begins to awaken our soul is he allows us to begin to understand that that there is something wrong, that something must be reconciled, that there is a God and I am accountable to him and something must change. And so he rebukes the other criminal. There were these two criminals, it's amazing to me, on either side of Jesus. They were equally near to Jesus. Both heard his cry of forgiveness. Both saw his anguish. Both were suffering equally. Both were wicked and deserving of death. But they respond so differently to Jesus. And in doing so, the paths diverge on their eternal destiny. 
It's amazing to me. We can be so near to Jesus. We can do all the right things. We can hear, we can come to church, we can hear all the right things. We can be next to parents who love Jesus. And if we choose to reject him ourselves, we don't get in on their ticket. There's these divergent paths. One believed Jesus and the other one rejected him. And the only explanation for that is God's amazing grace through his Holy Spirit opening the eyes of this man so he can truly see who Jesus was. It's amazing. So while this man's body was enduring the same trauma that Jesus was, his mind becomes excessively clear. He has a moment of clarity and each of us must come to this moment of clarity when the, the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and we're like, that's who Jesus is and, and, I, and I need him. I need to be reconciled for God because I, I, I fear his judgment. By his own admission, his sentence was fair and it was just. That's what it says in verse 41. So what, what does this, this sinner end up doing? The first thing we see is we see confession and humility. This softened heart leads to confession and humility. He says that we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. He understands that, that he's a sinner. He understands that he's not, he's not deferring blame on anyone. He's not blaming his parents. He's not blaming his society. He's not blaming the school that he was in. He's not blaming any of these things. He's saying, you know, I, I'm taking ownership of my actions. And he's confessing that need. We see the humility in his prayer. Look, look again at, at, at verse 41, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, just, just think about this humility. And Jesus, just remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. That was his only request. It wasn't a checklist of, Jesus, I need you to do this, this, and this for me. It's like, will you just remember me? We come as the repentant sinner comes in the book of Luke, where he says, have mercy on me, O God, for I am a sinner. That's the place that we all must come to. And in the Christian life, when, when the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, that's the place that we must again turn to. That this is the pattern of our life, that when we begin to see the sin in our lives, that our first response is not to harden our hearts and to blame someone else. Our first response should be, I'm a sinner. And we confess that, and there's a humility about our spirit. But God doesn't leave us wondering or wanting if we will be accepted in that moment. Because look at, look at what he he. he says about Jesus. He says that you are the one that has done nothing wrong. Our confession and humility must then turn to faith and belief. That's the second part of this. Jesus in Mark 1.15 says, the kingdom of, of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
Repenting is turning away from sin. It's, it's seeing your sin, seeing that there is a need, and then turning away from it. It's being on a train headed in the wrong direction, I've seen a pastor say, and then realizing, oh, this is going the wrong way, and then say, I need to hop off this train and get on the other one. There was one time, this was our, after Lauren and I's first year anniversary, we, were, we went to the Biltmore, which was super fun, and we went there and hiked and all that kind of stuff, and the next day, we needed to hit I-40 West coming back home, and I didn't really have it in the GPS and that kind of stuff. And it got to the point where, uh, and Lauren was driving at the time, and we got to the point where it's like, oh, we, we've got to decide which way we're going. And for many, many years living in Jefferson City, I've been on I-40 East so many times in my life. I'm like, oh, no, we got to, I-40 East, hop on it. And about an hour later, when we were getting close to Charlotte, I realized, oh, no, we've gone the wrong way. <laughs> We've got to get back on and go I-40 West. Repentance is saying, I'm going the wrong direction here. And confessing and acknowledging that. And then belief is hopping back on the true path back to the way in which God has established us. So we see this criminal turn the attention from himself to now he turns it to Jesus. And, is, and he, doesn't just, he doesn't just continue to say how unworthy he says, he says, no, this man, is, this man has done nothing wrong. He's the perfect one. He's confessing the, the Lord's, essentially his, um, his sinlessness, his perfection. He believed that Jesus was perfect, that he had done no wrong. And then at the end in his request, in verse 42, he says something interesting that tells us who he believes Jesus truly was. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. To your kingdom. Meaning that this man, this criminal, had come from an understanding that, okay, there's something wrong with me, but this man is perfect. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the one that is establishing his kingdom. He believed and trusted in Jesus alone in this cry. Because no one else has a kingdom, right? But Jesus has a kingdom. He's like, Jesus, I'm trusting in you. Each of us must continue day after day to return to Jesus. Remember me when this is your, about your kingdom, not about mine. But I, I don't want us to just gaze at this criminal and that kind of stuff because it, it is amazing. But what's even more amazing is the response of Jesus. We look at the gracious and gentle response from the suffering Savior. Look with me at verse 43. I'm amazed by this. And he said to him, I imagine he turned and looked at him, looking him eye to eye. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Truly. He says the word truly there because what comes next is almost impossible to believe that this man who was a sinner and being condemned to death for, the, you know, for all the right reasons, he deserved death. But Jesus turns and he says, today, not only will I, rem will I just remember you, but today you will be with me in paradise. And we learn four things 
about our salvation in Jesus. And this truly means that it is a promise from, the, from God. First, let's look at today. He says, truly, I will say to you, when? Not tomorrow, not in three days. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Death by crucifixion would normally last for multiple days, but Jesus here shows his sovereignty, knowing that in just a few hours, they would break their legs and they would die, that his death would be today. And sure enough, that would happen. But the promise that this man would be with Jesus today also shows that salvation is truly through faith and by God's grace alone. That there's not an intermediary purgatory period. This man had no chance to do and right all the wrongs that he had done. He didn't get to come down from the cross and live like Mother Teresa for 30 years, did he? He didn't have a chance to write this incredible prayer and, and weep and have gnashing of teeth. He didn't have chance for refinement. This man died in a couple of hours from now. But Jesus says, because of me, because of my sinless perfection, because of my death that is substitutionary, you're going to be with me. And that's why we have this promise that whenever we pass to the other side, if we are in Christ, that day we will be with him. We have much to look forward to. We don't have to earn our salvation. We don't have to, to, we don't have to earn our way there. We don't have to be perfect. We just must trust in Jesus alone. But there's also a second promise, not just today, but that you will be. You shall be. It's kind of hidden in there, but you'll be is a certainty. Jesus says, truly, you will be be. As sure as I'm here today, you're going to be with me. Jesus says you can bank on it. Even in your last moments, if you cry out in repentance and faith, you will be with him. That's the promise that he gives us. Alistair Begg um, tells this story that's absolutely brilliant. And I wish I had, I think a Scottish accent is what he had because it, it sounds awesome when he tells it, but I, I'm gonna tell it for him. He, he tells the story of the thief on the cross in one of his, of his sermons. And he said, you know, I always think about this relationship um, to the thief on the cross when he arrives to the portals of heaven. Can you imagine that interview process with Peter? What are you doing here? The criminal says, I don't know. Well, who sent you here? What? No one sent me here. I, I'm just here. Well, are you, have you been justified by faith? Do you have peace with God? What Sunday school class did you attend? Were you a member at a local synagogue? I, I don't know. I don't think so. Well, do you know anything? Yeah. What do you know then? I know that the middle, the man on the middle cross said I could come here and that I would be with him. Salvation is nothing less than Jesus saying, you're coming with me. That's so good. That's so good. And it's not an excuse not to know things and to live a way that, that God intends, but it's that our salvation is not earned by those things. 
Our salvation is by God's grace alone through Jesus Christ. And it's applied to our hearts when we believe, when we confess and believe in him. The third promise is this, that you'll be with me. Jesus confirms that what the book of Hebrews tells us, that he is the author and perfecter of our faith, that our faith is the beginning of an eternal relationship with God, an eternal relationship with him now and forever, and that we get to enjoy being in relationship with him. Hebrews 13, 5, at the very end of Hebrews, says it this way, and he's kind of summation, he's making a summary, summary, summary excuse me, of the entire book of Hebrews and then saying, okay, here's what you are to do because of these things. He says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he, meaning Jesus has says, said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus promises that if we are with him and in him, that we will be with him forever. That the process, this is Philippians 1.6, that the process that he begins at the moment of our salvation, that he will extend that and complete it. That he doesn't begin a project with us and then just kind of walk away. So you may be in here and, and you're feeling downtrodden. You're beaten up. You're feeling separated from Jesus. Beloved, you need to know that he is not leaving you or forsaking you. And so Hebrews says, keep your life free. Live the way God intended, knowing that Jesus will never forsake you. And finally, the answer to this prayer that this man, Jesus, remember me. Jesus responds, today, it's better than you asked or imagined. You will be. It's better. It's, a, it's assured. You can bank on it. You can live your life by it. Will be with me. I'm not just going to remember you, but you're going to be with me. Where? In paradise. In paradise. This wonderful promise concludes by, I don't even think just telling us where Jesus is going, but he's showing the condition that we will live in where Jesus is going. It's more of a what. Paradise is a what. It, it means that this criminal has full reconciliation with God and will live his eternal eternity in peace, in perfection, the way that we desire to live our lives. What grace! Paul cries out to God in Ephesians 3, 19 through 20, that, that when we pray that, that we can expect God to do abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine. I like to think about that in terms of French fries, okay? Five guys, they give you abundantly more than you could ever ask or imagine, right? You order the small and they stuff that cup full, so full, and you're like, okay, I'm, I'm content, my heart is satisfied. Jesus, remember me, but you know, know what? No, boom, extra scoop of fries in the bag. Those are the extra bag fries, beloved. No, that's the good stuff. And Jesus says, I'm gonna give you more than you could ever ask or imagine of me. Just trust me, you will be with me 
in paradise with that bag fries and everything. So we have nothing to boast about, but we have so much to look forward to. In Christ alone do we have our salvation. So what do we do with this? First, if you're in here and and you're saved, be thankful for what Jesus has done for you. Thank him for that. Thank him for your salvation, for the promises that you have, for what you have to look forward to. Maybe you're in here and and life has been tough recently. Circumstances uh, uh, just feel like they're raging against you. Maybe you need to hear this promise of what Jesus has and maybe you need to rest in them. Maybe you need to rest with Jesus, knowing that he's not just with you then, but he's with you now. And maybe there are people in here that are stuck in sin or people that have never trusted in Christ. Maybe you, in fact, reject him. Well, Jesus is inviting you today to welcome him into your life and to to say, Jesus, I am a sinner. Change my heart. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Repent and believe. God's calling us to do something and respond away in this. And so whatever he is, I invite you to be faithful to that. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you don't reject us in our worst moments. That this criminal had nothing going for him. You had no reason whatsoever to allow him into your kingdom. But by by your grace, he received a great salvation. And I pray in, in this moment, Lord, if there's anyone in here who is not a believer, that you would draw their heart. Holy Spirit, come and move in them, enlighten them so they can see their sin and their need for you. They would see your beauty. God, for the discouraged believer, I pray that they would be able to rest in your promises and in your presence. Remind them of your goodness and your faithfulness. Lord, for us that that are in here that, you know, we're just going through the motions, Lord, remind us and change our hearts. Help us to be grateful and praise you for the salvation you've given. And it's in your name we pray.